the subject tonight comes right out of the, the Torah portion for this week, which is called Toldot. These are the generations or the progeny of Isaac. And who are they? Jacob and Esau, or we call them Yaakov and Esau. And even though usually Esau is spelt in English as A as E S A U, I don't know why, because I just spell it with a V like it sounds, Esau. It means the made man. He was made. He was already almost, so to speak, he looked complete. He was right there ready to go out into the world. Yaakov is called heel, grabbing onto the heel of Esau, and for other reasons, later on his name will be changed to Yisrael. In the word Yaakov is the word heel, and the word Yisrael is the word rosh, head. Heel and, ro heel and head. There's the lower level of, of Yaakov when the children of Israel are later on at least in exile and there's the higher level during the redemption periods. So Yaakov and Yisrael remain the two aspects of the children of Israel. Uh, I'd like to share with you here some, some, these are two things that I wrote about already in two, two, two of my books. You have the first two pages are from, from Realizing the Unity. That's this book here. And then the second two, the second three pages, the second set is right there, is from Purim Light. It's a book that I wrote about Purim called Purim Light, about the, the Purim story. And it's about Esau and Ishmael. Very interesting stuff. About the relationship of, of these, um, shall we call them cousins? Let's see. No, there. Let's see. Sure. That um, um, in terms of Avraham being, I guess that uh, Ishmael is an uncle of Esau. Rabbi, could I have you speak up a little bit? Yeah, sure. Okay, I just had to be told. Thank you. Okay, so it's interesting that at the beginning of Parsha Toldot, which is Genesis 25 through Genesis 28, we read the story of Yaakov and Esau, the twins born to Yitzhak and Rivka. Isaac and Rebekah. After 20 years of marriage, almost immediately we are told the boys grew up. Esau became a skilled trapper, a man of the field. Yaakov was an Ishtam, a young man of integrity, unpretentious, wholesome, and single-minded. He dwelled or remained in tents. According to the Midrash, these tents were the tents of the Academy of Shem and Ever. Shem is Malkitzedek. His name is Shem in the Torah, and later on he's called Machitzedek, as you all know, and he happens to be the same person, and he's the son of Noah. And then um, down here on the bottom in footnote number one, we see the relationship between Shem and Ever. They are not father and son. <laughs> it says Shem is Noah's son. Ever is Shem's great-great-grandson. So that's that. And there's a, a little bit more information there. It's a little bit complicated, but it's, it's, uh, it's interesting if you want to know genealogies. Okay, but then something strange. Ve'yehav Yitzhak et Esav. Yitzhak loves Esav. Why? The Torah tells us, Kitzayid befiv. This could mean because of the game in his mouth. 
referring to Yitzhak's mouth. Yitzhak liked to eat the game that Esav brought to him, the food, the animal flesh. According to this interpretation, Yitzhak enjoyed eating the game that Esav brought home from the field. But these same words could refer to Esav's mouth, that he had game in his, in his mouth, his ability to, tra to trap people. Even his father he could trap with his smooth-talking tongue. In English, these two positions yield a double meaning for the word game. So. On a deeper level, Yitzhak wasn't fooled at all. Precisely because Esau was a man of the fields, Yitzhak saw that Esau could fulfill a very important function in the universal, the universal tikkun, the rectification process. What's that? I'll tell you in a second. According to this line of thinking, Yitzhak wanted to work with Esau's natural talents to help him bring them into the service of God. He could march boldly into the darker realms of creation, wherein countless sparks of holiness had been lodged since Adam lost the first battle with the serpent, the snake, the sneak in the Garden of Eden. Esau could redeem these sparks and bring them to Yaakov, who, as the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, would complete the elevation of the sparks. Together they could complete the work that Abraham, Abraham, and he, Yitzhak, had begun toward the total rectification of the sin of Adam. This was the ideal relationship in, that Yitzhak envisioned between Yaakov, who dwelled in the tents of Torah, and Esau, the hunter of the field. It is represented later in the relationship between the two tribes called Issachar or Yisachar, the religious scholar, and Zivulun, the merchant. So the merchant would go out to the world, he'd bring in all kinds of things, and he'd bring them to, to Zivulun, who would be the, to Yisachar, who would be the one, who's the, the, the one who's involved in contemplating the spiritual, and the two of them working together, right? That was the vision that, was, that Isaac envisioned for Jacob and Esau, and that, as I say in the footnote down below, is what uh, was really actually envisioned for the relationship between Adam, where do I say it? Yeah, in footnote number four. The ideal relationship that God envisioned between Adam and the serpent, the Nachash. The Nachash was supposed to go into the deeper valleys, so to speak, of creation and clean up the world. And the Midrash talks all kinds of things about what the Nachash could do and what he would have been doing. Everybody would have had two, two of these. You have this in the spiritual technology about the, the Midrash, about what this, this amazing creature would have done. He would have done business for us. He would have been all of our technologies roll into one. It's a very innate, I mean, how the Midrashic level reveals things and draws things out that you would never have seen yourself. I think we named the section of the book Man's Best Friend, question mark. <laughs> <laughs> so this idea of universal tikkun, right, I just wanted to move into it slowly. Everybody's familiar with the terms. Anybody have any problem with the, what, what we just read? The idea that that we would work together 
that Isaac envisioned. The, but the, 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 full, the whole point of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, that, that incredible, uh, what's called in, the, in, in one of the books of the Bible, the triple fold or the threefold rope that will not break easily, right? Because it's threefold. It's, it's, tr it's triple. Once, uh, th these represent a, a process, a dynamic. The Abraham, the Abraham dynamic, the Isaac dynamic, and the Jacob dynamic. And they're, all, they're in all of our lives. But, um, and there's the Avram stage together with Sarah, the Isaac stage together with Rebecca, Rivka, and the Jacob stage who then becomes Israel. This is a built into creation type thing. It's just God needed three, three special people to live it, to make it real in the world. The potential was there. The idea was there before creation, in God's creation. It represents the three, the three columns of the, of the tree of life. Love, justice, and the harmony between the two, called mercy. Uh, Abraham is, is love, loving kindness, represents God's in, unconditional love of all creation, of all creatures. When, when you go through our, through our Abraham stage, we all of a sudden discover the beauty of Hashem's creation, of God's creation, of people, of, of the Sabbath, of, of, of serving God, of, of learning things, of learning new things, um, of believing in the goodness of people of mankind. Then comes the second stage. This is all the thesis. The antithesis, oh, I get disappointed, I get hurt, I get kicked, I get depressed. I learn things that I didn't learn during the first stage. I see people are more human and even worse than that, than I thought. It's, it's hurtful, it's disappointing, it's the dark side. That's what Isaac represents in terms of our personal life. It's, it's, it's being thrown back on ourselves after, being, after having been lifted up and become ecstatic and elated. And then, you know, I'm back. The, they, they turn the lights off. And then Jacob is coming back, but coming back having gone through the Isaac stage. And now I have a core inside of me that I can carry wherever I go. And I don't depend on external stimuli to be able to be high or low. And he represents the absolute harmonization of the two extremes of Abraham and Isaac. So just a little bit of an insight into how you can do much more than, th these are not just characters. These are people who embodied divine attributes, really. As opposed to India, where somebody is called a god, we don't go that direction. You know, little, little um, god boy, the color in blue. But here, it's these people were privileged to embody the attributes of the creator of the world. Each one had all of them, but the emphasis in Abraham's life was acceptance, love, etc. The emphasis in this one was yeshdin v'yishdayan. There is a judge and there is judgment. Not, you can't just love everybody, Dad. He had to, he had to, to, to balance his father's um, amazing capacity to just love people and, 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 and just overlook their their craziness and their stupidity and their foolishness and just only look for the good, like even the, the people of Sodom, Sodom, right, who he prayed for. Isaac wouldn't have done that, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, let him go to hell. 
Okay, so so these these and, and so what really inspired these 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 people, these these amazing, incredible people who attained greatness, not just were born great. Nobody's born great. You're born with potential, but you gotta develop it. That's why they were tested. And we'll see more about why where, where the testing comes in. Why does God have to test us? Why do we have to go through such hard times? Like, what do you want from us? Why are you so hard on us? Ah, very, very important. We'll see that in the second thing, the second thing that I'm handing out to you. So one thing at a time. They wanted to fix the sin of Adam. They wanted to rectify the sin of Adam. So I have to understand what Adam was about. How awesome he was. But if I do that, we'll meet up in an hour. <laughs> the rectification process the importance that an individual says I'm nothing I'm, I'm nothing but I feel a mission that I need to fix something I need to do something I need I feel that I'm being uh, my destiny is to do something that's not an ego thing that's a sense of service that's when you me I all of us each one of us and all of us together can do something and we can make a difference and no matter if there's only 10 or 35 of us compared to 3 million somewhere else our power is stronger than theirs because we have the infinite that we're trying to do his work they might think that they're doing also the work of God but there's a objective moral standard here if you want to go and kill people because they don't believe in what you believe in then you already know who they are but I'm just trying to, I'm trying to tell you the importance of the individual, of the decision of the individual to become a servant of God. It is all of a sudden, heaven says, oh wow, what a light is shining down there. Okay, let's help him. We'll test him. I mean, because, you know, we'll stretch him beyond his, beyond his capacity. But we'll, in doing so, just like, just like a good coach. You know, if you had a good coach who was, you were training for basketball, football, or for the race, for, the, for running, or swimming, um, after a, the first few days, you hate your coach. <laughs> a few weeks go by, you hate this man more than you've ever hated anybody in your whole world. You hurt so much. A few months go by, and you're already starting to say, wow, <clears throat> I can do things today that I couldn't do a few months ago. This guy is amazing. You know, so that's really, in a sense, God is that kind of coach. He stretches us, he pounds us, but what comes out is a real human being. So it's a hard one to take when it's again actually happening to you. But I bless us all that we should be able to to really grow to our potential. Amen. Amen. So, all right, that's basically what I wanted to say here, and we can always fill in some more later on. We'll read on here. And the second to last paragraph in the bigger print, Rivka, on the other hand, loved Yaakov. Right? Isaac loved Esau. And whatever for, because as we said, he saw something in Esau. Even though Esau was a problematic character, but he saw the potential for Esau to play his part in his unique way in the ultimate rectification process. But Rivka said, no. My husband, you're so naive. <laughs> Aesop's problems 
Don't even go there. Esav loved Yaakov. Rivka disagreed. She considered Yitzhak naive to believe that Esav's talents could be turned to the good. Having grown up in the house of what we call Lavan, or you might call Laban, she could recognize a smooth talker when she saw one. That's what he was. Her father was like tops. In addition, she was the one who had learned from Shem. In addition, she's the one who had learned from Shem when they were in her stomach. When she went to him, the prophet Shem, when she was pregnant, that she was carrying twins. He's the one who told her that. Shem himself had told her in Hashem's name, the upper hand will go from one people to another, and the greater one will serve the younger. Well, so she didn't reveal this information to her husband, although she probably communicated her feelings to Yaakov. She was a doting mother. Whatever the case, the next two scenes are crucial. In the first, Yaakov feeds lentils to a famished Esav, only after the latter agrees to sell him his firstborn birthright. That's the first scene we know. Now the word birthright in Hebrew is Bechor. Bechor. The letters of the word Bechor, the main letters, Beit, Chaf, Vav, Resh. And take out the Vav in the main letters Without the vav, bait chafresh, the numerical value of bait is two. The numerical value of chaf is two hundred is uh, is twenty. The numerical value of resh is two hundred. You got a two twenty-two there. Interestingly enough, the firstborn always gets a double portion of the inheritance in the Torah. Lynn, we're going to see in a second that. You're going to see a second that the, um, the second scene, the second scenario is um, Yaakov ob obtains the blessing from Yitzhak. I hope it doesn't mix you up. I say Isaac sometimes, Yitzhak sometimes, but really you know, I hope it's, it's okay. You know, you, you, you get that, right? Yitzhak mm -hmm. is his real name and Isaac is some kind of English thing that they do to it. <laughs> I think we live in an international time and if there's something is its name is a certain thing so it's, that's what its name is. So I think that in my books I write Moshe and not Moses and I write you know I write them like they're spelled like they're like they sound. I okay so in the second one the second scenario Yaakov obtains the blessing from Yitzhak that was intended the, the, at least he intended for Esau God intended it for Yaakov but Isaac wanted to bless Esau but unknowingly because he had lost his eyesight he blessed this is the famous scene right so you have the word bless in Hebrew is Baruch or some various different combination of the letters but you have the same letters as above here just a different combination. You have two, two hundred and, and twenty instead of two, twenty and two hundred. So that's interesting. Give me the blessing. What is blessing? I want more. And also, in terms of oneness and two-ness, oneness is the light, is God's light. Two-ness is the ability to carry it and to receive it. Two is the container. So Baruch is, a, is establishing a relationship with God whenever we bless the Creator. 
and thank him for what we have. We actually create a, 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 um, a receiving antenna to receive the blessing of the Creator, of the One. It's just uh, interesting that um, these letters recombine in different ways and have sig very significant meanings. So the word blessing is, um, is all, it's all the same numerical value as 222. And that um, it means that we are asking for more. When we, when we bless God, we are, we are asking to bring more godliness into the world. And then secondly, it's actually the container with which to receive godliness. And then each, word, each letter here actually means something. The bait, the, the letter that we call bait, when you make it into a word, it's a bite, it's a house. A reish is the same word as the word rosh, head. The house contains people, a head contains ideas. A chaf, this is a kaf an open palm. It's a receiving also. They're all in one way or the other receiving. So the word Baruch has that concept in it. The, it's interesting that any word that, that ends with the letter Kaf in Hebrew is Shelcha. It is yours. Sheli, a yud at the end of a word, it's mine. The yud is, is actually, this is the, 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 the form of the yud. It's a closed hand. It's mine. Shilcha, it's yours. I open my hand. It's yours. Beitcha. Oh, any word you took, you just put the chaf at the end. It's yours. You put the yud at the end. It's mine. Okay. So the bottom of the first page, the last few words on the last line of the bigger words. Here we see Rivka emerging as a mastermind. Her knowledge of the future of her two children that she had kept to herself justified her decision to do what was necessary to obtain her husband's blessing for her beloved son Yaakov. She felt justified to send Yaakov out to get two goats to bring them back to her. She slaughtered them. She skinned them. She made the meat. She put the skins on Yaakov's arm and neck. And she had Yaakov go in to serve Isaac, the father, the meat, and that whole scene that you're all more or less familiar with, right? The scene where Isaac says, Who, is that you, my son Aesop? And, and, ja and Yaakov, I didn't see it in the exact words, but he says, I am, uh, yes, I am, Aesop, your firstborn. I am, yes, I am. Asaph, your firstborn, which he's, it's the double meaning. He's not really lying. It's, he's saying, I am. Yes, I am. And what, anybody want to say something? You, you were about to say something. Anyway, so you know the scene. Asaph, of course, comes in. He was naturally furious at Yaakov for tricking him. He came back, and it was like a revolving door. The minute that Yaakov left, if it would have been one, one split second different, Aesop would have seen Yaakov in the room impersonating him. Rivka played a, a real, this was a serious game. And, and yet, the way Hashem orchestrated it is that 
Esau only entered after Yaakov had left. And so when he grasped the full implication of his loss, Esau exclaimed, Hachi kara shemo Yaakov, v'yakabeni za ze pa'amayim. Now I understand what his name is Yaakov. Um, which is um, the verb for outwitted, for he outwitted me twice. He outwitted me twice. He healed me twice, basically. If you want to say it, it doesn't make sense, but he, he gave me the heal twice. He outwitted me twice. He got, the, um, he, he, he got the firstborn, and now he's gotten the blessing from Dad. And he was furious. First he took my birthright, the Bechorah, and now he has taken my blessing, the Bracha. And I guess I bring it out, what we just said there with about the two words in, verse, in uh, footnote number seven. As a result, Esau now hated Yaakov more than ever because of the blessing that his father had given him. Esau said in his heart, Yikruvu yimei evo avi, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. I will then slay my brother Yaakov. We're going to see more about that in a second. Whoa, that's a heavy. Uh, the minute that dad dies, I'm going to kill Yaakov. And you have the rest for yourselves. Just trying to kind of build up slowly, step by step, brick by brick, some kind of a, a picture here of the original relationship, these two twins. And Isaac's vision for the two of them has now basically been, that's it, it's almost over. No, no, it's not over. It's not over. As I was sharing before with, um, with our friends from Waco, Russell and Teresa, Please welcome them, because you're going to be friends from now on. This, huh? The Waco community and the humble community. So as I was telling you before, um, uh, uh, Hashem had a mission for, uh, for Esau, and no matter if Esau does it in line with the way Isaac wanted to do it, which was to be a servant of God and to complete the perfection of the world with his brother Yaakov together, or if it has to happen that Esau goes off on his own and just leaves the family tradition and goes off on his own, he's going to actually do it. It's not going to be in, in the same spirit. He's going to think that he's doing what he wants to do and not what dad wants him to do. But the truth is that he's doing it. And I, I'm not sure if I'm communicating it clearly enough, but um, Esau's mission is to go into the depths of the, of the, of the, of the valleys of this world to bring back the spiritual forces, the spiritual jewels that are there. If Yaakov would go there, Yaakov would be, wouldn't, it's not, he's not made for that. So, and in truth, that is what Esau has done in the, in, the, in, the different, in the different empires that Esau has built. In the first stage of the Roman Empire, the conquering stage, then the, the stage of Christianity, the stage of the Renaissance, all the different stages that the, the Roman Empire has gone through, which comes from the biblical Edom, and Edom was the name that the, the Bible gives, the secondary name that the Bible gives to Esau. So it's basically Western civilization is the Esauvian civilization. And it's, in a sense, in one sense, it's totally a contradiction to the job of, a, of Yaakov. And he's been a nemesis 
and of course during the burnings and the crucifixions and all of that, it was looked like, you know, it was hard. Um, but the vision of Isaac, which is Hashem's vision, is still alive and well. And what I want to talk about tonight is the return of Esav into a rectified relationship with Yaakov. Now our problem is Yishmael. <laughs> with your permission, we go on to the next page. There's the thing called Megillat Esther, right? It's, a, um, it's an amazing story. It's in the Bible. And it's, um, it's basically the secret behind the, the, um, the book of Esther, the scroll of Esther, is that um, it all seems to just um, happen. And yet it's not just happening. There's a, there's a choreographer behind the scenes. And God's name is not mentioned. It's not mentioned in one other book in the Bible also, the Song of Songs, the actual name of God. But that's for a different reason. Here in the book of Esther, the name of God is not mentioned because it represents the concept called Esther. Esther is, the, is from the root nistar, hidden. Megillat is from the word ligalot, to reveal. Megillat Esther, in a way, besides being the scroll of Esther, is the revealing of the hidden. You hear? Ligalot nistar. If you ch just change it a little bit to get the reading out, the revealing of the hidden is that God reveals himself through the hiddenness, through the actual events of the story of the Megillah, not in his actual full, full biblical form where you know, God's name is mentioned. No, here it's through the actual events, the choreographer behind the scenes. Okay, so one of the things we learned from the Megillah is that there are basically two types of enemies. There's the Amalek Haman, Haman type, like Hitler and Arafat are livid with hatred against Israel and against Israel's return to Zion. The Ahasuerus type, the king Ahasuerus, is more like the proverbial wolf in sheep's clothing. He, he looks nice, sounds nice, but he's really dangerous. At his 180-day party, he wears the clothes of the Kohen Gadol that Nebuchadnezzar, his predecessor, his Babylonian predecessor took when he destroyed the temple. And Ahasuerus now has married the, the daughter of Ahasuerus, uh, the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. I think it's his daughter or granddaughter. I think Vashti is the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. So in that sense, he was like a real low guy who married into the royal family and then took over and became a despot. That's the story behind the, the rise to power of Ahasuerus. And so he wears the clothes of the Kohen Gadol and he uses the vessels of the temple of the Beit HaMikdash during a 180-day party in order to drive home one critical point. The spiritual power over the world has been transferred to me. You will never return to your land or build your temple. You may live in my kingdom and flourish, but only if you assimilate into Persian culture and completely give up all hopes of returning to Zion. All this he said with a smile. Mm -hmm. 
We have a president now who does that. similar smiles. Okay. Well, I'm not supposed to be political, I guess. Say what, President? <laughs> oh, I didn't say which one. Yeah, you didn't say. <laughs> but we're in coin the lines. So these are two types of enemies. The Talmud likens the relationship between these two types to two landowners. One had a mound of dirt in his field, while the other had a large ditch in his. The man with the ditch thought, I'd pay anything for that mound of dirt to fill my ditch. The man with the mound thought, I'd pay anything for that ditch so I could get rid of his, this mound. The guy with the mound said, I need a ditch for this dirt. The guy with the ditch said, I'd like that mound. Time passed until one day he happened to meet. The man with the ditch said, sell me your mound. The man with the mound said, hey, do me a favor, take it for nothing. <laughs> the man with the mound is Ahasuerus, while the man with the ditch is Haman. Ahasuerus had a mound, the Jews in his kingdom, that he wanted to get rid of. Haman had a ditch, an irrational need that needed to be filled. When Haman thus came to the king and offered to pay to wipe them out, Ahasuerus was so overjoyed that he could now hang the responsibility on Haman that he demurred on the money. And there's the quote. Haman said to Ahasuerus, there's a certain singular unique people who are scattered, dispersed among the nations in all the countries under your dominion. Their ways are different from those of other nationalities. They don't obey the king's laws. This is Haman speaking, Haman. It's not worthwhile for the king to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be inscribed to exterminate them. I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who perform the job, deposit into the king's treasury. The king removed his, king, his ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, son of Hamidata, enemy of the Jews, saying, it's okay, keep the silver. Just get rid of them. So, uh, in a sense, uh, well, that's, uh, all this is really a lead-in into, into Esau and Ishmael, but... Um, I don't, I don't want to take too much time for it. Let's just let's see, where, what do I say here? Why did Ahasuerus rush to give Haman his royal, king, his royal ring? In addition to conceding on the money, the fact that he gave him the ring indicates that, that he was as eager as Haman to get rid of the, the Houdin, the Jews. We see that, that although the Amalek Haman type is usually considered Israel's public enemy number one because of their irrepressible hatred of all Jews, the Ahasuerus type is worse because they hide behind the Haman types and rely on them to do their dirty work. Now you can see it for yourself. Okay. Yeah, so we have to read on. In essence, the Ahasuerus type uses the Haman type, although in the end it's revealed that each tries to use the other. As with Ahasuerus and Haman, these two types first overcome their hatred for each other, only enough to work together to destroy their common enemy. Israel, but this is only until the other is no longer useful to them, at which time one secretly plans to get rid of the other. So this is the way the wicked man deals with life. He uses and goes into, he makes a covenant with anybody who can make it with, you know, um, Turkey is just going, Turkey is weird. The, at first, the country. The, the country, the, the president, the prime minister. Putin, Putin is, a, is a master chess player, and he's playing chess now against 
a very weak president. And he's filling the vacuum into Europe and in the Middle East. And he has China and Iran that he's supporting, and of course Syria. Now that's an incredible axis. And uh, little Israel is there, and we've been put into a very, very difficult situation. Of course, Netanyahu, that's all he talks about in the UN and everywhere. Red line, red line, red line, red line, and nobody does anything. And Kerry is in the, uh, in the Middle East um, proclaiming that uh, the, uh, the Iranians have made a deal with us that they're not going to develop for, 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 for wartime purposes and yada, 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 yada. All a bunch of meaningless words in terms of what Israel is. So this is real dangerous stuff. Okay, now, so we're getting down to the bottom of the page. This type of scenario where one uses the other, well, because until a certain point, America used Saudi Arabia and just, just got a lot of money and just gave, and in Egypt, we, we armed Egypt, we armed all of them, and we got a lot of money out of it millions and millions and millions to individuals as well as to the entire, you know, and the, and the Arabs basically started buying up America. I don't know if you know that they own like a lot of more things than you'd, you'd, you'd want them to own. Because we've had presidents since, since, uh, since Carter and, and the others that have just been um, basically uh, selling America down, down for money, anything for money, and a lot of it. So, um, and now Ishmael starts to come and start to want to take over and take over the world. They, they built a place called Dubai. It's a weird place. It's billions of dollars into these huge, tall buildings. And um, they want it to be the, the capital of, of, they want the new Disneyland, Disneyland of the world. They want to be the world where everybody comes. They have all these, these grandiose dreams of being the center of the world because they feel that it's their time now to take over the world, that Esau's time is over. Esau used Yishmael until now, but then Yishmael said, hey, he ain't going to use me anymore. I'm going to take over the world. And we see that they're going to live in Europe and they're going to live everywhere, and they start this whole demographic thing of taking over places, and they don't assimilate. They create pockets of, of very difficult things where you can't live there anymore, because if you go into their community, you won't come out alive. Yeah. A lot of stuff to say, but I just want to give you the, you know, the, give the feeling of it. You all know all more than, as much as I do. So I just say at the bottom here, this type of scenario is predicted with uncanny accuracy in the oral tradition. The, the characters are going to change. It can become Yishmael and Esav now, as opposed to Ahafrosh and Haman. And it's based on a single subtle hint in the Torah, in the last verse of, our, of this week's Torah portion. The, t the context is dramatic. Yaakov, with the help of his mother Rivka, has managed to steal his father Yitzhak's blessings from his twin brother Esau. Esau grasps the implications of his loss, and he exclaims what we said above. You can see it in the English, the next page. Haki Karashmo Yaakov, Now I understand why his name is Yaakov, for he has outwitted me twice. First he duped me into selling my birthright, and now he has swindled me out of my father's blessings. 
Esav now hated Yaakov more than ever because of the blessing that his father had given him. Esav said in his heart, very interesting um, expression that the Midrash will, will, will go into. He said in his heart, meaning to say, he started making a plan. Uh-huh. Yikrivu yemei the days of mourning for my father are at hand. I will then slay my brother Yaakov. So that's what we're going to go into now. What did Esav, so this is all part one of tonight. In terms of timing, it's eight o'clock. Uh, we're already gone an hour. And I have a plan for tonight, and it's probably um, going to have to cut short at certain places. But I just feel that I have to, I, I'm asking you to go with me as we go. And I'm going to give you stuff to read. So that, oh, at least if we don't get to say everything, but you'll have the basis to build on that I want to give you. What we're going towards here is the rectified relationship between all three of these, but Yaakov, Esau, and Yishmael. What we have right now, the situation is not rectified. And, and Yaakov's in, in danger. And, un, and, and, and Esau is in danger. The different aspects of Esau, the Esauvian civilization. Right? We have in the book of Avadia that the, that the king, that the that the fourth, that the that the that Edom, which again is one of the names of, of Rome and the Western civilization, will end, and it will be the beginning of the Messianic age. This, it's the last empire before the the Messiah, and it will it will the Messiah will come on the ashes or uh, are on the on the heels of the Asavian civilization. Now, Esau could make that different. No, no prophecy, no negative prophecy has to come through. Esau could come through with flying colors, and so could Yaakov. None of us, all three of us now, Yaakov, Yishmael, and, ya and Esau are all in their lower form right now. The Jewish people are asleep. Esau is into doing what he's doing, and Yishmael is into killing people. Right. We're all in a very sad state, and the Bible is... A message. It's a prophetic book on every level. Right? The three main characters in the world right now coming right out of the Bible. So we go on now. We, we ask now what does it mean after the indented paragraphs at the top of the page? What did Esau mean when he said in his heart, Yikrivu yimei the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Since Yitzhak was quite advanced in age, we might think that in order not to cause his father extra grief, Esau was willing to wait until his father died a natural death before he took revenge against Yaakov. We might think that, but the Midrash is bothered by the word Yikrivu, at hand, approaching. It seems that Esau is impatient that his father die already. In actual fact, he's busy hatching a scheme to hasten his father's demise. What is the scheme? It is subtly hinted at in the last verse of our this week's Torah portion. Esau went to Yishmael and married Machlat, the daughter of Yishmael, Abraham's son, Nevayot's sister, in addition to his other wives. There's a lot of relationships here. Wait. So Esau went to Yishmael, and he married a girl named Machlat. Now Machlat is the daughter of Yishmael. And Yishmael is Avram's son, right? But why, why does the Torah have to throw in that she's Nevayot's sister? We actually know that 
from previous, uh, pre the previous week, uh, a few chapters ago. Why does the, why does the, why does the, the brother come in here? So Esav has now taken another wife in addition to his first two Hittite wives. And her name is Machlat, and she's the daughter of Ishmael. A lot of information, you just have to like rearrange it in your mind, and we'll go on. Esav went to Ishmael and told him that he was interested in marrying his daughter Machlat. Sounds good, especially in view of the fact that Yitzhak and Rivka had just sent Yaakov away to Padana Ram, Mesopotamia, to find a decent wife from Rivka's family there because they were unhappy, extremely unhappy, to say the least, with Esau's first two Canaanite wives. Now, Yaakov, you go over there to where your mother is from, and you marry from a girl from there. We don't want you to marry a girl like Esau married. <coughs> So again, sounds good. Maybe Esau's doing tshuva. But wait, why is Esau going to Yishmael? In other words, he's marrying, he's, he doesn't want to marry the same kind of girls that he's married to until now. Because these girls that he's married to until now, they've, um, they, 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 they light incense. And one of the three reasons why Isaac's eyes were, that he was blind at the end of his life, is one is the first reason he was on, he was bound on the altar. And the angels were crying into his eyes. It's Midrash, but that's what it says. And, and basically he became blind. Oh, that's a whole thing, but I can't go into it anymore right now. The second reason is that he, his daughters-in-law lit incense in the house. Smoke got in my eyes. The third reason is that God wanted him to be blind so that when Yaakov would come in and get the blessing, he wouldn't know it. Okay. That's just what our tradition says. Everything has... Stories behind it. Mm -hmm. All right. So, again, but wait, why is Esau going to Ishmael? Doesn't he know that Ishmael harbors a deep jealousy and a hatred in his heart against his half-brother Yitzhak for having been chosen to carry on the Abrahamic line instead of him? So the Midrash provides answers to all these questions. According to our tradition, Esau is Edom, the progenitor of Rome and hence of modern Western culture. Similarly, the Arab peoples are, are clearly embodiments of their ancestor Yishmael. In line with these equivalencies, the Midrash now provides an incredibly profound reading of 21st century modern history. Looking deeply into the character of Esau and Yishmael, the sages said the following. Esau said in his heart. What did Esau think in his heart? He said, it is not fit that I kill father. Rather, I will tell, i.e., incite Yishmael his brother, and he will kill him. Hmm. I will then slay my brother Yaakov, and he, Ishmael, and I, Esau, will inherit the entire world. Hmm. This is what he told, this is what Esau told Ishmael. In other words, Esau did not only want to kill his brother Yaakov, but to have Ishmael do the dirty work of killing his own father, Yitzhak, so they could both rule the world. But again, this is only what Esau told Ishmael. Behind the scenes, he had other plans in mind. This is what Esau told Ishmael, but in his heart, Esau thought, once Ishmael kills my father and I slay my brother, I will come upon Ishmael and slay him as well so that I can inherit the entire world alone. Of course, we can surmise that Ishmael, for his part, was also, surely also saw 
through Esau's duplicity in his heart he too schemed of course Esau is thinking that he will kill me after I kill Yitzhak and he kills Yaakov <laughs> so that he will rule the world I however will rise up and slay him and inherit the entire world I mean, there's some pictures do not be fooled. If Esau and Yishmael would have joined forces, they might have actually killed Yitzhak and Yaakov, and with that, Hashem's overriding messianic plan. Hashem therefore had to intercede here, and he did. The subtle hint for this is in the superfluous mention of Yishmael's son, Nevayot. Esau went to Yishmael and married not Machlat, the daughter of Yishmael, Nevayot's sister. If we already knew from the Torah that Nevayot was Yishmael's firstborn, why does the Torah repeat here that Machlat was his sister? So Rashi asks this question and answers, knowing that Machlat was Ishmael's daughter, isn't it already implied that she was Nevayot's sister? Rather, this comes to inform us that Ishmael died suddenly after he designated Machlat for Esav before her marriage. As a result, her oldest brother, Nevayot, gave her in marriage. Ishmael did not live to make the marriage covenant with his cousin Esav. If they would have, the combination of the two of them together would have been curtains for the entire messianic process. With Ishmael's untimely death, Hashem's thwarted Esau's plan. Of course, Esau went ahead and married Machlat, but the, the plan to join forces with Ishmael himself had been thwarted. According to the masters of Midrash and Kabbalah, the Torah does not just tell stories. This is prophecy. No less than other more explicit verses that appears scattered everywhere throughout the Torah. All right, forgive me for doing that to you, because it's really just a brick. We've done two bricks. But we did it. What did we get from all this? We got into the story. We got that Hashem brings his plan to fruition through human beings, even, and if necessary, sometimes um, unknowns to them, even um, he uses the wicked man as much as he uses the righteous man to bring his, his plan to fruition. But there is a plan, and that's really important, that the Torah teaches that there's a plan to history. And we can call it a messianic plan um, just for, 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 because it will culminate in a, in a, um, what we believe will be a very good end scene. Hashem is truly merciful and loving. He knows that mankind is unconscious, but he will bring about his plan despite that. Sometimes we say that he will do so in the merit of the patriarchs and matriarchs because they were so special, because there were people along the way who really got it and who really worked for the plan and who really gave their lives for the plan. In the merit of those, we will see, we the children of all of them, we will see the unfolding of the plan of God. And we believe that we're very close and we're in, the, in, this, in, in our lifetime. And that the things that are, the history is moving quickly, more and more quickly in accelerated fashion. Things are happening overnight that used to take hundreds of years. And that we could play a part in that. As we said at the beginning, 
even for a small group or a small group here and a small group there, or even an individual, we can play a part in this incredible, because why? The Torah now has is beginning to educate us about the existence of the plan. It's not a plan to take over the world like the Germans said, the, the Russian guy who wrote the book called the, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, those Jews want to take over the world, they have a secret plan. That's stupid, right? And you know, they're still reading it in every Arab country. It's the bestseller, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. They're fools. They believe, the, 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 they believe it's this believing lies becomes so easy. Just make, as Hitler said, make the lie as big as you can because they'll believe it. And repeat it as much and as much and as many times as you can, and then people will believe it. Mm -hmm. How sad. What, a, what an unconscious mankind we are part of. But the light is shining. It says in Isaiah, darkness will cover the world. In a thick darkness will cover the peoples. But Hashem will shine on you, and His glory will, be, will, will, will appear on you. So the idea that there's a darkness in the world, but that's, that's okay, so it's a dark world. But the people of the world are even in a darker place than the world is dark. Okay, the world is dark, but you've made it even darker because you've, you've fallen into such a thing where your, your, your desire to, to gratify your lusts and to, and to take power, that's just, wow, that's dark. That's dark of dark. And so we don't want to go there. And it feels that those are the people who are taking over the world with their, their schemes and their plans and their, right, their... Um, uh, what do you call it? Um, Maneuverings? Whatever. But they seem that they're the ones who are taking over the world. And who are we? We're just sitting ducks and we're, we're at the mercy of these people. So that's where it comes, the idea of believing in Hashem. And then looking back to the story of Abraham against Nimrod, who wanted to throw him into the furnace. And him believing in his in his connection to Hashem so much that he says, I'm willing to die for that. And then all the others who did this also along the way, who said that I want to live the truth. I don't want to go with, what's, what's, what, with what other people are accepting as the truth. The prophets told us that what history really is about from up here, not what it's like down here on the board where everybody believes in their, their particular, you know, game plan. We want to connect to the, to the high, and that's what's being given to us now. And that's why this information, as difficult as it is, that we have to t hear and see these things, but it's so important for us to get a real strong knowledge that this was known from way back behind that this was going to be like this. The end time scenarios, right, that more or less is almost inevitable that mankind's going to be asleep but we can wake up. And not, it's not I'm better than you because I'm waking up, it's that Hashem is allowing me and helping me to wake up, you too can wake up. And we can all start to wake up. And, and it just, it's a good story. 
and look what a, a wonderful privilege we have to be living at this time. And look at it that way. So here we go with the next leg of our journey. Thank you so much for being here. Yes? Mashiach comes during our lifetime. The prophet of Eliyahu is he going to be a real person, or will it be the spirit of Eliyahu? Good question. Good question. The spirit of Eliyahu is already here, and the spirit of the Mashiach is here. In modern terminology, the consciousness of the Mashiach is already spreading forth into all of us. Those of us who want to want to be there for it, to, to be the receivers of it, you are receiving it now. You are receiving it already. And um, and um, So oh, I don't have an answer for you because the spirit of Eliyahu is a very powerful thing for me. Yeah, Ruach Eliyahu, the spirit of Eliyahu. Uh, but um, we don't know. It could be um, that we will be privileged. Right now, we don't have the 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 the, the Messiah in body. We have him only in the spirit. And. Um, one could say that if we were worthy, we would have a great leader who would rise up and bring, be able to unite all of mankind. And so for the fact that we don't have him means that we're not worthy. That's one way it's, it's been said. But again, let's look at it in the way that actually it's happening. Um, it's, it's just like... Um, again, the idea that it's there... It's just, let's be, let's be aware of it. Let's pray to Hashem, to God, that we become privileged to play an active part in the unfolding of, of His story. History, history is His story. And when He says about Himself, He calls it my story, mystery. <laughs> Why is mystery spelled with a Y, you know? <laughs> history spelled with an I, so it's... So mystery should also be. Anyway. And of course then the idea that Esther, stir, stir, story, history, Esther, the hidden story of God. Esther. So you have here some pages from this book here called Universal Jewish History. It's very hard to get. I got my first copy of this around 1975. And it really made a big difference for me. A very, very special man named Philip Bieberfeld passed away. He was a professor, uh, I don't know of what, but I guess he was connected to Yeshiva U in, in, in New York. And uh, the, chief, the, the rabbi of that, of that university, his name was Rabbi Yosef Soloveitchik. He also passed away in the meantime. This is a four-volume set. And um, the first volume came out in 1948. The second in 1963, the third one is this in 1972, and the fourth one, which is the Exodus, 
1980. So it's over a, t a, 30, a 32 year um, span that this man wrote this book and he wrote it, called it Universal Jewish History because he wanted to show that the biblical story, the, the story of the unfolding of the patriarchal age especially with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob took place within the Middle East and that we know now from the archaeology a lot about the Middle East and, and, um, and, and we know then therefore that um, when a name is mentioned in one of the stories of the patriarchs, we know now how to see that there are name, similar names or similar, very similar names mentioned in certain archaeological digs that come from that very period. So that's one thing he does. He does really nice work with, with um, showing how archaeological evidence bears on the Bible, something that Vendel Jones um, was very much into. Um, so it's one, it's very nice that he he's he's looking at the at the development of the of the of the biblical story within the larger context that the Bible doesn't tell us about. It only mentions that there's ten nations. Only once it mentions with Abraham that there are ten nations, and then after that it only mentions seven nations all the way through the entire Bible until the very end. The ba the called the, the Canaanite nations. There's seven of them, and. Um, they're the nations that have taken over the land of Israel and that the children of Israel are going to go into there and conquer the kings of the Canaanites and take over the land of Israel. But the Can it's Canaani, Chiti, Chivi, Yevusi. These are the Hebrew pronunciations of these Jebusites and Hittites, etc. But he brings out here who these peoples were and what we know about them now from archaeological digs. And it's like really, it's really great to know about. Because a lot of the Torah information that you're going to read in our generation from Feldheim and Art Scrolls and all that is very much limited to the way the Jew wants to live his life right now and how he wants to see history, which is fine. But it's really, there's like so much more going on if you look at the, the context within which Jewish history unfolded. What was happening in Egypt? What was happening? Who were these kings who came down? The four kings who fought with the five kings? And what was that about, right? And uh, all these interesting things that the Torah, like the Torah Jew, actually very, knows very little about. So it's really a, a great area of study, you hear, for somebody who wants to know. And he does a great job. What we're going to see here in his introduction to Volume 3, which again, I'm not going to rush through. I want to get to the, I just want to show you, you know, to, to go through it with you, to speak about it a little bit, and then you'll do the rest of it yourselves. I would go so far as to make a Xerox for you of all four volumes. And, oh, no, I would do it like this. I would do JPEGs. I would make a, uh, um, I, would, I would create a text. You cannot get these. A friend of mine in Denver, very dear friend, heard me talking about these books, and he went on, he just kept searching for weeks and weeks and weeks until he found volume one, volume two, they were easier to find. But volume three and four, he himself could only, he found three, three sets of one and two. But volumes three and four, he asked me to make a Xerox for him because he couldn't find them. So I, I think these are important books and I would like to share them and therefore I'll make somehow um, an attempt to, to do that for you. Okay. Genesis, the book of creation. 
Genesis is the book of creation, not only for its first chapters, which describe the creation of the physical world, but also because it tells the story of the creation of the Jewish people, the bearers of the divine goal set forth in the creation of the world. You do have here, after the first few pages, you have the, the footnotes as a part of your set. It skips from page 7 to page 12. At the end of every chapter, he does the footnotes. Uh, you can't sever it because you have it um, stapled, but whatever, you keep your fingers there. <clears throat> the development of the physical world was designed by God through mechanisms such as mutation, selection, adaptation, tests, and trials. Okay, see, he's using an evolutionary model here, but certainly it's an evolution guided by God. Uh, many of the Torah sages would not be bothered by that at all. Evolution, Darwinian evolution, which has been debunked by mathematicians and, and many from all over the place. It's just, it was, the guy was, was really just fighting against his, Jew, his, his, um, his, um, he went to a, um, Jew, a Jesuit, he was a Jesuit, mm -hmm. and he just, he just didn't like it. He went off to this island and wanted to find a way to explain the, the origin of, of life without God. So he had a vendetta. Well, thank you. We don't need you. Right? Freud had a vendetta. He wanted to find a way of understanding the psychology of human being without God also. We don't need him. These people have fallen by the wayside because they, they had their own personal, their own personal like, psychological problems. We want information here. We want clear information of people who are not, not trying to push anything on us. So he does use the words mutation, selection, adaptation, tests, and trials. We're going to see it actually makes it really interesting. <coughs> when that development has been achieved, the evolutionary process, modified yet dominated by the same evolutionary mechanisms, was continued on the psychological plane. So the, the patriarchs, and even from Noah onwards, and Enoch, Enoch was an amazing character that most people know very little about. And then after that came ha uh, Noah, and then after that came Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the, the continuation of, the, of, the, of what begins with the story of creation, but now on the human level, on the psychological level. It's to it's in the, in the, towards the evolutionary goal, which is the messianic age. This is a conscious, a conscious alignment of the human being with the divine plan. That's what he calls the psychological level of the evolution of the world. Here again he set twin goals. God set twin goals. Freeing man from his bestiality, <clears throat> from the animal instincts inherent in his nature, because the animal had preceded man in the course of creation. So man has to be freed from bestiality, and he has to achieve tzedek, which is righteousness, the bestowal of the harmony of creation on all aspects of human life. The freeing from bestiality and the bestowal of righteousness. These goals require a spiritual and moral fitness and success in terms of psychological evolution. The essence of human history is the ongoing struggle between the forces of evolution, the tzaddikim, the righteous, and those who oppose them and follow their animal instincts. Power. And balance is the preservation or the destruction of the world. Through free, though freedom is granted both sides, the achievement of the goal of tzedek, 
righteousness is assured. God has the good end in sight. He will bring it about no matter what. He'd prefer that we be the ones who be instrumental in bringing it about. He wants us to be righteous. Toward this end, a blessing is bestowed on all those who bear the standard of the evolutionary goal. Whenever, in the, what, he, what he writes about, he just adds just a little bit of a, a new twist on things. Whenever you see God bless somebody, give them a blessing, he's saying, I like you. I like what you've done with yourself. I'm going to invest in you. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to enhance you. I'm going to bless you. It's a powerful thing. And that's what we want also. That's still, that's still operative. These basics of existence are still operative. So he gives blessings throughout the Bible, right? People found by the same process of progressive selection as dominated the physical evolution. Universal history constantly seeks them as one seeks a pearl lost in the sand. When the pearl is found, the sand is cast away. He's basing himself on the famous thing that Rashi says in Genesis 37.1, where he says that uh, there were ten generations from Adam to Noah and ten generations from Noah to Abraham. And that the Torah actually reflects how, what it considers important by how many verses or words it gives to any particular person or period. It goes real quick after Adam, very quickly through the generations to Noah. You, do you remember? And then it stops with Noah and gives us a whole, pair, a whole thing on Noah and his sons. And then the, the, the splitting of mankind into 70 nations. It's, it just says one after the other. And then it gets to Abraham or Avram, the son of Terah. And then we have, right? So by, by, how many, by how much ink, right, so to speak, is given to something, we know what the... So it's, it's likened to sieving a sieve through sand when you've lost a pearl. And when you find the pearl, then everything else is left behind. It's the pearls you're looking for. Twenty generations passed into oblivion before Abraham was found. He's the pearl. After he had proved his fitness in ten trials or tests, a mechanism of evolution. In other words, God's evolution is to test a person to make him great. He became the bearer of the future of mankind. You hear this is a great way of saying it. He's a Hirschian. Rabbi Hirsch is a great teacher. He lived in Germany in the late 1800s. Um, Hirsch was also a very universal vision of what, what the Jewish people are about. So this man is similar in his thinking. It's just open up, open up here. Let's open up. Let's, let's see what it's really about. It's not Abraham for the Jewish people. That's not what it's about. Abraham is for mankind. It's a new light shining for mankind. Proclaiming to the world at large the message of Sedek, of righteousness, which was, to rule the f which was to rule the future, thus leading the unconscious effort of man towards the light, towards conscious effort, consciousness. And he brings a verse from Joshua, the book of Joshua, where it's really implied in the way that the verse is written that there's a certain type of um, selection process. Um... Again, with your permission, I just keep reading. But what the kind of reading we're trying to do here is, is to bring it alive so that when you go home, 
and you'll take something with you and you'll see that this is something that can, that can answer a lot of questions that you might have had about the relationship between Yaakov and, and yourselves, the Jewish people and yourselves. That you can be who you are and become great and join with us and help us to become great and then we'll work together. This is the joyous joining of the two branches that Hashem wants to happen. That's why I see this as a, a historical moment because I'm, I'm not the only one who's been here. There's others who've been here before and will come here afterwards and I hope to come back and I hope that we can form a network that will be more and more our voice will be heard and that people will understand that the time has come to speak out, for us to write, to speak, to share with others. So it brings the, vo the verse from, from, from Joshua. The selective process then continued among the descendants of Abraham as explained by Joshua. On the other side of the river, your fathers dwelt of old time, Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Okay, so I, I, I cut Nahor out, and I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him throughout all the land of Canaan, Canaan, and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. It doesn't mention Ishmael here, because it's automatically disqualified in a certain sense, and I want to explain myself. I gave unto, a I, 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 so Abraham and Isaac, and then I gave unto Isaac, Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the mount of Seir to inherit it, so to speak, to put him on the side, and Jacob and his sons went down to the land of testing, to the land where they were going to be tested and pressed and crushed in order to become the, the Israelite people. Esau is put on the side and given his kingdom in this world. In a sense, he's, he's being told, you can just adapt. He's going to say it soon. Adaptation is what you're going to have, right? You don't have to go the hard path. But without going the hard path, you will not get also the land of Israel, which is reserved only for those who go through the valley of the, of the shadow of death. So, but what I want to say here is that Ishmael and Esau have from a, even a higher point of, more comprehensive view, is that Ishmael and Esau have their own internal evolutionary story that's happening now. And, and this, the, the weeding out of the good, of the bad, in order to produce the good. And I see that happening now, is that when things are done um, and people react against it, when things get so bad here and things are said or done by the government and people are going to say, we don't want this anymore. Hey everybody, wake up. This is not what America is about. This is the good saying we refuse to any longer bow to the forces of darkness that have tried to take us over and co-opt our energy. This is an important moment when people should stand up. The truth is the whole political system is a, is a low-level system that does not really represent. It's a manipulated system, especially the last election where the ballots were counted in Spain, of all places. Like everything was fishy and the fishy smell was very bad. <laughs> but whatever, it, it, the, the point I'm making is a simple point and, 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 and it has to be simple. It's a time for good men to stand up and speak.
So these words accurately describe the progressive selection that took place at the time of the patriarchs and was climaxed by the emergence of the Jewish nation. In this process, all the strains that were unable or unwilling to accept the hardships of the evolutionary road were eliminated. The alternative to progress was adaptation. You're going to go the way of adaptation, we're going to go the way of evolution. That's the way he's using the words. Now down at the, 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 second, the, 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 the second to last paragraph on the page, the choice between adaptation and evolution is detailed in the story of our friends, Aesop and Jacob. Aesop at birth is perfectly adapted. His, main, his name means fully made. Jacob holding the heel of his brother as if to protect himself from being crushed is a symbol of the instability in which he would live. Refusing to submit to the tribulations of the evolutionary road, Aesop became fully adapted. He settled down and founded a kingdom long before the descendants of Jacob reached their evolutionary goal. Jacob was tempted by the desire for adaptation to escape the afflictions. It was like a hard life he lived and the misery of the life of instability. And he is taught and he accepts the fundamental principle that the only choice lies between the road of evolution which in spite of all agony and grief leads to the future and the way of adaptation. So there's a lot here. I think he really says it the way it has to be said. He's an academic, but he's a, he's a believer in God. And so you, you, you see that it's not just a bunch of words. He really has content to what he's saying here. Um, he, um, he's, it's a very amazing thing because this teaches us that well, what all of a sudden somebody can, can, um, can leave the church and all of a sudden things bad happen and all by and, and their friends say, this is happening to you because you left the church. Mm -hmm. look, what you're, look what you've done to yourself. Mm -hmm. And so the Jewish thing is, welcome home, brother. Welcome to the hard way. Mm -hmm. uh, um, it's commiserating with your friends. I mean... Um, but, but again, the hard way, uh, nobody wants the hard way. Nobody wants to have hardship and to have all kinds of things go wrong. I mean, I just had a problem in, the, in, in Israel where they weren't accepting American checks from my American account, from anybody's account, and the money changers in, in Israel. And, um, and there, nobody knew why. There were all kinds of reason being, reasons being thrown around, but nobody knew why. The money changers were basically closed for a week and a half. I would call and say, can you cash checks yet? No. So I had to figure out another way to get money into my account to cover the price that I had paid through my credit card for this flight. And it was going to be a, a big amount of money. And, and I, I was scrambling. And I'm, that was only a little thing. All right, in the end, it, it was fine. It happened. But what about a person who doesn't? What about when they start to bounce, to bounce all of your, your things and, and everything goes wrong? It's, it, it does something to you. We don't want that. Thank you, God, for making everything go bad. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in hindsight, but right now when it's happening, for sure. So, I mean, we don't want hardship. But, the, but still, read it again once in a while and see that there's a deep message here in what this man is saying. And I'll end tonight in terms of the actual thing and finally stop reading from pages here and give us a chance to talk a little bit 
by just introducing you to page five, where it says the word the toledot, the toledot. This is this is a brilliant thing that he did here, and you'll see it for yourselves. Um, he says that um, the successive phases of the physical creation and that of the Jewish people, as described in Genesis, are the toldot, successive phases of evolutionary jumping. The meaning of this term, which occurs 11 times in the book, has puzzled the commentaries. could find no uniform meaning applicable to all instances. It was assumed that the explanation varied according to the context as either these are the occurrences or these are the generations of Noah, these are the occurrences of the, cre of the heavens and the earth, these are the, the generations of Ishmael, these are the generations of Esau, these are the generations of Noah, 11 times. A special difficulty was presented by the application of the term to the physical creation. Ella told the first appearance of Toldot is in the beginning of chapter 2 of Genesis, Ve'ele Toldot HaShemayim Be'aretz. These are the, the generations, these are the, the unfoldings of the heavens and the earth. These are the chronicles of the unfoldings of the events of heaven and earth. Right? There was no one way to translate it. So he gives here all 11... If you, what you do is you, you, you go each time, he, he gives you the, the, the source in the footnote for which, um, which appearance of toldot he's referring to. You have the footnotes here, and you can see for yourselves. It's either sometimes talking about the, the, the main trunk, and that the toldot says, the toldot is continuing this way, and whatever is being mentioned here is being now going off into adaptation, or sometimes it says the word about the, the thing that's being, that's going off to branch off. And as I said, it's really important, my message tonight is that even within the branch that's branched off and now is relative to the, to the trunk is now adapting and therefore is no longer part of the story, but it has its own story and it will meet up at the end. And so that's what he doesn't say and that's why I may, I'm really making a strong point. It's not just a bunch of the Jews. It's not just a Jewish story. It's a story of mankind. And um, we're in it, and we can make a difference. It's not an ethnic thing. It's a thing of a teaching, a wisdom teaching that we're all part of, that we all can re receive. And when we start to get it, and we understand what the Bible is about, it's the story of mankind through the lens of the story of the Jewish people. And if we make a movie about it, then people would get it. And, the, and they're not getting it right now. Right? The movie would really blow everybody's minds. <laughs> At the end of the movie, we'd all sit there and say, oh my goodness, it's not about them, it's about us. That's what I'm trying to live to communicate. The Bible is not about them, it's about us. And us includes every single one of us. So, with that having been said, let's talk, let's sing, let's do something. <laughs> can, can we talk about number 11? I was just reading through. Okay. And um, I, I hear about the, you're talking about a reunification and a working together, but it says the final phase of the evolutionary developments are the toldoth of Jacob, praised to indicate the preceding elimination of Esau. That's true. Well, Esau's head, 
the story that we have is that um, um, Esau and Jacob, Esau came to prevent, to prevent Jacob becoming uh, buried in the Maratha Machpelah. And he was arguing there with the, the sons of Jacob that came from Egypt. Now there was a, um, one of the, 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 the grandchildren of Jacob, his name was Hushim, 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 the son of Dan. And he, he was deaf, and he saw that there was an argument going on, and he saw his grandfather lying there, and they had come all the way from Egypt. And so he, not knowing anything, he went up there and saw and understood on his own that Esau was preventing his grandfather from being buried, and he cut off Esau's head. And Esau's head rolled into the Maratha Machpelah. Is that the story? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Esau's head rolls into the, into the place where the patriarchs are buried. Basically, a part of Esau is going to be in there, and a part is not. So there's going to be a separation. There's going to be an internal evolution. He just is emphasizing here one side of the story. But we have enough information about the fact that what I'm saying, what's behind what I'm saying, that the, of the internal evolution within Aesop. So you caught it. He says it, the elimination of Aesop, right? But um, you hear what I'm saying is that this is just adding a little bit of more information to what he says to give us a, a, a more well-rounded picture. And, um, and we're even hoping that Ishmael will come around, although I have very um, big problems with that, because they've just gone further and farther with um, this ins insightful thing of a whole generation brought up to hate the Jew. They've been demonized. They've been Nazified. Mm -hmm. Since the Mufti of Jerusalem, the whole Arab world has been Nazified. Mm -hmm. But certainly Esau, especially now, we see it um, in the Catholic Church with the Pope being a, a, um, his best friend is the chief rabbi of Argentina. And he's saying really amazing things. Pay attention in the news to what mm -hmm. the Pope says. Mm -hmm. And of course, you're not Catholic, but, you want, but, you, but everything is significant here. The church is basically at its end in a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, tell that to a lot of people. Though, so, you know, there's mega churches now. There's, they're getting thousands of people you know, with lights, everything. Mm -hmm. But so, um, you, know, I, I, you hear what I'm saying? There's a way to answer this particular thing. You got, you saw it. And I feel that it's that it's answerable.